0: Yeah, if if you want to grow your knowledge of the event, probably don't start with this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back. Welcome back to the last.
1: Week of our themed month of this season.
0: That is right. It has been a wild ride for season seven's themed month. If you're a long-time listener, you know that every season we take one month of conversations and discuss scripts that have something in common. In the past, we've done a month of Arthur Miller plays. We've done a month of musicals. We've done a month of one acts and so on and so on seven times now. We're on the seventh one. So, I, you know, we're running out of ideas. no. We're not. We've got great (laughs) themed months ahead of us, I'm sure. But this themed month has been murder month.
1: That's right. We've been looking at various plays with murder as a central feature of them. We started the month with Macbeth before moving on to Death Trap. We took a brief break with uh, You Can't Take It With You. And then last week we did... uh French very long title play Chan
0: Juniors Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery I
1: believe Yep <laughs> <laughs> And we've kind of run the gambit on how we uh say murder is a part of the plays right Macbeth a very murdery play a Death trap <laughs> murdery very, play. Death traps a very murder mystery play um Uh, Francis or Charles Francis Chan Jr.'s exotic Oriental murder mystery has a lot of theme of murder, but perhaps never actual psychological
0: murder. murder. Uh, Yeah, uh, symbolic murder, metaphorical murder.
1: Yes, yes. And today we're taking another little bit of a switch, um, uh, for at least from those themes, still talking about murder, but today we're talking about Execution of Justice by Emily Mann.
0: Yeah, uh, Emily Mann is one of those American theater artists that the the sort of the lay person, the everyday person, may not know about, but she's a super important figure in what American drama is and how it works. We're going to, of course, talk all about her when we get to the context section, because she's a new playwright. Right to the podcast, but it's really great to come to an Emily Mann play and to come to this play, which is really one of the seminal documentary theater texts in the lexicon. I mean, this play and some of Anna DeVere Smith's work, which we've discussed before, and the Laramie Project, those are sort of the pillars that have held up what documentary theater is and has become.
1: Yeah, and that's gonna be a fun uh, last sort of lens to look at Murder Month through is through uh, a real life situation with real life characters through documentary theater and what documentary theater can add to uh, the retelling of 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 history and of actual events that happen. So I'm, I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation. Before we do, however, uh, I do want to take just a moment to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you all so much for being patrons of the show. We love getting to do this show. We love getting to have these conversations. And y- y'all over there on Patreon make it possible. You, you, you make this show happen. So thank you all so much. If you are looking for a way, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener and are liking what you're hearing, if you're looking for a way to support the podcast. We're 100% listener supported. Um, we are over on patreon.com slash no script podcast over there. You'll find a number of different tiers of membership, the lowest one being just $1, $12 over the course of a year. Hopefully you're getting that uh, a, a amount of value out of the show. We like to think that that, that you are. So hopefully you are. Um, we'd love to see you over there. We, there's a bunch of patron only posts. There's various tiers for you to, to uh, sign up at, as as a patron. Um, and uh, we'd love to have you a part of the community over there. So if you're looking for a way to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash podcast and we will see you over there.
0: And now, back to the script. Here we go. All right, so we're going to do... The, the, our little introduction here in the normal order that we do the context and the synopsis. But at the top, let's just say that this today is a conversation about a real murder that affected real people. Um, and and an artistic lens through which to understand what happened, especially in the wake of that murder, the murders of uh, San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and the supervisor Harvey Milk. So different than some of the other conversations that we've had, right? This this impacts real life and real people. We're going to try to spend our time today focused on what Emily Mann has done and how she has achieved it in the script. But please just know on the front end that this is one of those things that sort of blends into real life and so we just want you to be prepared for that if this is an episode that maybe is going to impact you in a, in a different way then maybe you maybe want to not listen to this episode um, and also we're not like authorities on the murder of George Moscone and Harvey Milk right so we're not historians we're not San Franciscans so <laughs> make sure that, that this lens does not potentially tell you the story of what happened to those two men and What happened to the to the man who killed them, Dan White. So this is this is a conversation about the play, not about the murders, even though that line is is funky to walk when you talk about things like documentary theater.
1: Yeah, know it's true. Because of, the, because of the nature of the script, because of the craft involved, and then because of our interpretations of that craft involved, we're a couple degrees separated from the actual event itself, or many degrees separated from the actual event itself. So, yes, if you're actually looking to, like, grow your knowledge of the event, there's plenty of great research, plenty of great documentation for you to look at. We're talking about just the play today.
0: Yeah, if, if you want to grow your knowledge of the event, probably don't start with this conversation. Right. <laughs> we're having yeah. a theatrical conversation. Yeah. about the play. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay, so back at it. Emily Mann, I I gave a little bit of an introduction in the prequel, but I just want to echo that. If you're a person who loves theater, especially in America, uh, get to know Emily Mann. Get an anthology of her work, listen to some interviews. She is a really impactful human being in American theater. She is a director and a playwright. She's done some screenwriting. Uh, She initially got her B.A. in English literature at Harvard and then went on to get her M.F.A. in directing at the University of Minnesota. And so she's kind of had this dual legacy as as an impactful playwright, and especially an an assembler of texts, and a fairly impactful American director. She was the artistic director at the famous McCarter Theater Center, right? So that's the theater in Princeton. And she was the artistic director there forever. In fact, just last year, following the 2020 season, she finally retired from that position that she had held and really shaped what the McCarter Theater Center is in America for a really, really long Long time as an artist, she's uh, received the Peabody Award, the Whole Warner Award, the Helen Mirra Award eight Obie Awards, a Guggenheim Fellowship. She was the 2011 Person of the Year from the National Theater Conference. So, really impactful writer. Thank you. Really encourage you to to check her out more if you're interested in what American theater is. Um, This particular play was commissioned by the Eureka Theater Company, which is a San Francisco theater company, and they were interested in responding to the trials, to the riots, to the murders, somehow theatrically. I believe my understanding of the story is that Emily Mann was working for them as a director more at the time in fact they had just staged a production of her play which she directed I believe is the story called Still Life there at Eureka Theater in San Francisco and then they worked with her on what they just called the the Harvey Milk Project or the Dan White Project for a long time before finally the title and kind of the clarity of what they were doing was established and they called it the the uh, they called it execution of justice. Um, as she was writing this, right, this is the early 80s. So the the ability to store all of the documents and information needed to create this kind of story in terms of what we think of now as file storage didn't exist, right? She wasn't walking around with a thumb drive in her back pocket of the trial transcripts and all these interviews. So the story is that Mann talks about love lugging around duffel bags full of Xeroxed, court testimony papers. I mean, just so much paper that she carried with her everywhere um, in in order to be able to continually work on this script. She calls this play a theater of testimony. We call it documentary theater. So it premiered in 1985 at the arena stage. Um, It went on to win an award called the Great American Play, uh, I guess a festival, the Great American Play Contest, at the Actors Theater of Louisville in 84. Big deal, Actors Theater of Louisville, Great theater. It went on to premiere and play on Broadway starting in 86. And that, that production features a lot of actors that you may recognize from back in the early 80s who've come into different kinds of prominence now, including Stanley Tucci, Wesley Snipes, Peter Friedman, Isabel Monk. I mean, those are names that just appear playing kind of side parts in this drama, which is really fascinating when you look back at plays from that late half of the 20th century. This play won the HBO New Play's USA Award, the Helen Hayer Award the Bay Area Critics Circle Award. It was nominated for a Drama Desk and an Outer Critics Circle Award. There was a film adaption in '99, which went on to be fairly well lauded too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so these are the you know it's a it's a it's a pretty relevant play to the time that it's being written. It's quite relevant, in fact. The the initial production out in San Francisco. Happened in '84, I think you said, or '80. I'm gonna look just to be sure. Somewhere around that time, '80, '84, '82, and then the '82. Thank you. And then the the Broadway productions happened in '86. Now between those years, uh, Dan White, the real life Dan White, was released on parole and uh, eventually wound up dying uh, at at his wife's house as a result of uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So, so this is a really relevant play at the time that it's written. He dies in 85 after being paroled in 84. So between the the events of the, or between the, the first production and the production on Broadway, the story is continuing to develop. So it's important to realize there's a lot of cultural relevance at the moment that this play is written. Um... The timing of the play is from 1978 to the present. I'm jumping into the synopsis in case you can't tell. That's, that's what's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, the, the timing of the play is from 1978 to Jacob's favorite term, the present. Um, yeah, now, like
0: when the play was written.
1: <laughs> when the play was written, which was 82. Um, and, and then subsequently in 86 when it was produced. The place is San Francisco, and the, the words, uh, the, the note at the front of the script is, uh, the words from, come from trial, transcript, interview, reportage, and the street. So the words are, verbatim in a sense from from these different recordings from real things that happened and then also the the hearsay of the street as well as a result or that the talk about the things that happened, the the play lays out the trial essentially of dan white and and uh through the trial of dan white we learn a lot about what happened act one is primarily focused on uh, the, the, the trial happening, the lawyers, Douglas Schmidt is the defense attorney, Thomas Norman is the prosecuting attorney, and they lay out the events of the case. We learn that Dan White, uh, took a loaded gun to work, tried to get into the building, uh, realized there was a metal detector one way. So climbed through a window, went upstairs, uh, talked to, uh, George, uh, Moscone, who is the mayor of San Francisco. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, And and, and shot him in his office. He then proceeded down the hall and shot Harvey Milk in his office. Um, He he left the building, went to church, or called his wife, Went to his church, told his wife that he had shot these two men, and then turned himself into police. And there's a recorded testimony that plays at the end of Act One. We learn a lot more about their relationship, too, that uh that uh Harvey Milk and Dan White had a lot of kind of tension between them, and yet they agreed they agreed on some things, had a lot of tension around some other things. Uh Harvey Milk had voted against Dan White on one of his main issues that he ran for re-election for, or sorry, ran for election for to the city council that that they were both on. Um um, and so there's a lot of tension between them uh, that that is brought out through the the trial.
0: Yeah, and and it's the the main tension uh, that sort of led to the murders or I guess they acquitted him of murder, so you you call it what you want, the killings um are are it's it has to do with Dan White Resigning his position on the board of supervisors, and the the play, and of course, lots of people since then have speculated on why that was and why Dan White ultimately decided that he wanted his position back. And so he asked the mayor for his job back. They have not filled the spot yet. And ultimately, the mayor and people say, and and the play kind of lays out why Dan White may have thought this that that Harvey Milk sort of actively worked against Dan White getting his spot on the board of supervisors back. And the board of supervisors is. Like San Francisco City Council. And and so because the mayor didn't give Dan White his position back and and supposedly Harvey milk was sort of actively campaigning against Dan white getting his position back that's kind of the immediate thing that pushes Dan white to go and then the killings happen as a result of him being there now of course that one thing I don't think anybody believes is like the the, the a reason for killing or or even maybe the reason why right there's lots of other things and the defense of course in the court case laid out in this play makes the their arguments for what led up to this sort of boiling over point, and then Emily Mann, through investigation of other witnesses, kind of makes her own case for it. But th- that is like the the sort of lin- the the linchpin turning point for what for why the killings happened, kind of in the immediate moment.
1: Yeah, and we learn lots about the the greater. Uh... Uh, cultural moment of the tension of the cultural moment. Certainly, um, uh, Harvey Milk is 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 a, a a cultural moment. He is the first openly gay man to be elected to political office. Um, San Francisco is going through a cultural change. A, a lot of gay culture is growing in San Francisco at the time, which is in uh, uh, a change from the city, which was primarily. Uh, Irish Catholic run for a long time and there's still a large contingent of those folks of which Dan white kind of belongs to or at least is connected to so there's a lot of kind of cultural aspects going on there's also the Jonestown massacre which is a you know the you know the the, the massacre that the, the the term drinking the kool-aid comes from 900 Americans um, who started in San Francisco moved out of the country to a, to a compound a, a religious cult was running this event and 900 people took their own lives as a result of this kind of charismatic leader, all of them really tied to the San Francisco area. So there's, there's just a lot of, of political upheaval. There's, everyone's worried about that and the connections. So into, into that cultural moment, uh, Dan White kills both, uh, Moscone and, and Milk. Now the f- the first act we we learn all this stuff we it's it's mostly mostly storytelling we're starting to kind of get get uh, all this information get warmed up to it we under, we're understanding what's happening um, the prosecution is calling for first degree murder um, which requires premeditation and intent and 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 motive and all these things. Um, the defense is arguing for voluntary manslaughter and uh, that uh, is kind of uh, removing all of those those kind of motives and intents and premeditation all that business and just kind of saying well he just you know uh, became over overcome with his situation he had a lot the, of other- heat
0: of the moment passion yeah. the the defense makes the case that he was suffering basically from manic depression um, as a result of all the all the things that they make the case for and that he just sort of snapped in the moment
1: Right, a lot of pressure at home, he's losing money, uh, all this business. Uh, The second act is most of that argument. The second act we watch uh, the defense kind of mount this barrage of, of, of evidence of psychiat, psychiatrists, psychologists, and all these different people come through, um, and, and support these, the, 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 claims that he probably wasn't understanding what he was doing, um, much to, uh, Thomas Norman, the prosecuting attorney's chagrin, who just can't, like, quite, quite land the plane on, on cle- what is, what is, seems clearly to be an open, shut, first-degree murder case. Um, the, the, the play continues on. We, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch on one thing at the end that is happening simultaneous to all this, but I'm going to get through the events first. The 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 court uh, and the jury sides with the defense. Uh, Dan White gets out on um, on the uh, voluntary manslaughter charge, gets seven or seven or so years, which then gets knocked off for good behavior. And, uh, the the end of the play, uh, takes in the events of 1985, uh, we get mentioned that he did end up, uh, dying of carbon monoxide poisoning at his wife's home. And then a final line from him, uh, which is really similar to some of the stuff he was saying in his, uh, kind of confession that he was just, just a person who was trying to, who was outnumbered all the time on city council, trying to do what he thought was best. That's the end of the play. Now now it's important to note while we're getting this kind of court scene interwoven there's there's tons of people called to the stand right this play has so many characters in it um there's there's the uh trial characters there's Dan White and Marianne White his wife there's a cop there's Sister Boom Boom who kind of uh uh is this uh person dressed in drag and uh, representing this nun who comes on and is like uh decrying uh, Dan White and and his potential release. Um, Then there's the witnesses for the people. There's witnesses for the defense. There's like 15 characters in here. There's in rebuttal for the people. There's characters on tape. And then there's a cast of characters called Chorus of Uncalled Witnesses. And these are probably the people that uh, Emily Mann went and interviewed or the word on the street sort of characters. And they're providing kind of commentary interwoven throughout the court scene. Um, uh, Commentary on other opinions. Commentary when it seems like the prosecuting attorney has has the uh, has the help of the court in his objections, and when Thomas Norman can't quite mount a defense, other characters are mounting a maybe better defense or or their own perspective of a defense. So interwoven throughout this, we get a, a bunch of chorus characters who are not a, a part of the trial itself, and nonetheless are real people. And and had things to say that that were connected to the case and are kind of adding commentary throughout as we watch the the trial of Dan White and his eventual um lessened sentence for voluntary manslaughter and and uh, that that's that's kind of the, the the arc of the meta of the play.
0: Yeah, and this chorus of uncalled witnesses group of folks, uh, you know, obviously they are uncalled witnesses, right? These are people that it seems like Emily Mann as playwright is making the case, perhaps should have been called by the prosecution because of what they have to say. And this takes kind of a, a number of different forms. One thing that is mentioned several times in the course of the play is that the prosecution basically allowed the defense to spend a lot of time on Dan White's character and person, who he was as a human being, but that the prosecution never did that for Harvey Milk or Judge Moscone. There was no sense of empathy, sense of, uh, you know, well, this is, sure, Dan White's family might be without him if he's in prison, but what about these two men and their families? And this is what their life is like. This is who they are. And so some of the chorus of uncalled witnesses are just people who knew and loved Harvey Milk and George Moscone and and sort of lending a sense of the personal loss that that is going to be suffered by the community, by the family, by the friends of these two men. Then there are also uh, witnesses with sort of specific knowledge of some kind. The initial jailer who oversees Dan White as he's in took after he turns himself in and he has things to say like, well, look, he didn't seem depressed. He seemed funny If he really was in this manic depressive state, then the shooting certainly cleared it all up for him. He seemed fine when he was with me. And uh, police officers who say things like, look, in the police department in San Francisco in that time, the idea of assassinating the mayor and Harvey Milk was like something that was talked about. That was just like chatted amongst, joked about amongst the police officers at the time. So there are all of these kinds of witnesses that help Emily Mann to build her own case, right? She becomes sort of, as playwright, a prosecuting attorney for the idea that this trial was severely mishandled by the prosecution, which allowed, in her view, a guilty man to basically walk free. I mean, he got five years, but to basically walk free for the cold-blooded killing. Of two assassin, political assassination, really, of two city leaders.
1: That is one of the fascinating things about this play is it both presents a verbatim report, right? Something that uh, if, if if we're thinking about a verbatim report or words th- the from someone, um, we're generally thinking that, you know, we're getting it about as close to the horse's mouth as we possibly can, right? Like you, you have this sense of, well, we're giving these people a fair shake because we're listening to their exact words. We're not rewriting the character and inserting a bunch of motives and making it a cool theater piece or something like that. These are the exact words, of the people. And, and then you also have the lens of this, this chorus and the craft of the playwright, when the chorus speaks, when, uh, these verbatim words are interrupted or commented on that, that provide this, this, yes, this lens you, you get, you get, you definitely get the sense that the playwright and, and the, the word on the street or the people in general have a different, uh, thought about whether justice was served than the court does the court and the jury does. Um, because you, you, you get, you get these commentaries throughout, like, like for instance, very early in, in the trial proceedings, uh, the pro the defense attorney, uh, Douglas Schmidt is picking the jury, um, and, and, and saying who is on and who is off. And he's being sure that anyone who could possibly have any sympathy for either George Moscone or Harvey Milk is off of the jury and and by contrast Thomas Norman exercises a, a very small number like 3 or 5 objections out of his possible 20 objections to the jury members and you have these these characters commenting on that so that's the way that that um that's the way that these events are kind of told verbatim um and then commented on by by the other characters and the community members who this this murder affects
0: right so this jury selection is sort of the first major uh, uh, action of the court that we witness in the play. And and that in itself is an example of the playwright, although she uses trial transcripts and news reports and, and clippings and such, quotes, right, the work of arranging is the work of storytelling in this case, because of course the work of jury selection is not the first thing that would have happened in a court case like this. There were, would have been an arraignment hearing. There would have been all these various different meetings that would have led up to finally selecting a jury for the actual court case, which would have been years after or a year, you know, however long, months, whatever, after the actual murders take place, so she's cutting time, snipping two. I think the I think I read a report that said basically two years of all this legal stuff happening down to a you know ninety-minute, two-hour play, and so you see all this work, and and the jury selection thing is a great example because we get these little snippets of how jury selection might have gone, where the prosecutor basically is not doing any work to select the jury, the defense attorney is basically handpicking the exact jury that they would want. And then we get this uh, quote from a news report afterwards, right? We finish the jury-selecting scene where we get to see sort of for ourselves at least what Emily Mann wants us to see about the jury selection process. And then it immediately goes to this news clipping where a reporter says the jury has been selected for the Dan White trial. It appears the prosecution and defense want the same jury. Assistant DA Tom Norman exercised only three out of 27 possible peremptory challenges. So we get yeah. also sort of an analysis of what we just saw, but again, pulled from uh, these historical archives, or they, they feel like that to us now, although, as you pointed out, that they were very relevant and happening actively when the play was being created.
1: Right, right. And, and, and as far as the kind of relevancy and the visceralness goes, you also have to keep in, there's the, so we, I mentioned, uh, in the synopsis that the, the Jonestown's massacres had just happened, um, and, and feed into this story pretty closely. The, the, uh, i I'm spacing on the name of the cult leader. It's a very famous name, and I'm spacing on it at the moment. But the leader had ties to San Francisco politics. There was lots of threats back and forth between various groups concerning this. And all during the month of November, which is when Dan White uh, killed both uh, Moscone and Milk, um... You have you have this news coming in that more people have died at this compound and more people are dying and more of these connections are, so there's this communal grief happening it's only mentioned a couple times in the script kind of kind of assumed that we know much about it and that is some of the kind of cultural relevance tinged to it as well in the same but prior to 9/11 the Jonestown massacre was the greatest uh, death of American citizens so that 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 uh, uh, c- civilians. Um, and and so that, that is certainly playing into the events of the play and just is kind of assumed in the water of, of the writing of it.
0: Yeah, well actually before we started recording, Jackson and I were kind of chatting about how the language used to describe that tragedy in the play uh, clearly this is a play from like 30 years ago because it's just not the same language that we use today to talk about what happened. And so it takes you a minute to sort of be like, oh, I see what they're talking about now. Now I sort of understand the cultural moment that something like this happens in.
1: Right, right. And so so you have this pressure cooker that, that is well well laid out. Um, at least the defense tries to argue for it pretty significantly, that Dan White feels uh, threatened by various groups. That's why he had a gun, um, that, that there's a lot going on and that his pr- pressure around him, uh, uh, pressure from his family, pressure from the group that got him elected, pressure from the job, pressure to make money, all of these things kind of drive him to both this depression. There's a pretty famous uh, Twinkie's argument Twinkie defense that he's just been eating sugar for months and months or weeks and weeks certainly and watching TV not doing all the normal things that he did so there's this this big argument from the defense that there's this like com- the community of pressure around him that lead him to this snap moment where he doesn't know what he's doing
0: yeah in, in terms of the story Emily Mann is trying to tell about the events that took place she she's done an incredible incredible job crafting the idea that the defense took this this really human um, uh, sort of empathetic approach to how they were going to paint Dan White all the while knowing that there are all of these cultural and political things happening in San Francisco politics which are going to assist the defense in ultimately getting the verdict they want. All the while, Emily Mann paints the prosecution as sort of out of touch, maybe even tinged a little bit by those same San Francisco politics that were sort of driving what was going on. There's a great example of that early as the trial actually gets underway, uh, where the prosecution, this is one of those scenes where she has taken things, and this is basically the whole play, really, but she's taken things that don't occur simultaneously and layered them on top of each other and how they are being presented in order to sort of make a point. So what's happening is on um, one of the things of the two things that's being layered is that the prosecution is interviewing the coroner who is describing basically the gunshot wounds to both Milk and Moscone. So that's one thing that's happening. All the while, there's also happening the defense basically making opening statements about the kind of case they're going to lay out, who Dan White is, the political pressures, the societal pressures, the family pressures, the mental health pressures that were on him all at once. Now, of course, in the trial, those two things don't happen simultaneously, but she puts them on top of each other as part of her storytelling technique, and what ends up happening is you watch as the prosecution gets the coroner to describe these gunshot wounds, but it is obtuse language and you can sort of see the story the prosecution is trying to tell like look he shot him and then he leaned down to shoot him again so it wasn't out of the heat of passion this was malice but the coroner is just using obtuse language to describe the gunshot wounds and try to tell that story and it's not very effective all the while the defense attorney is saying things like good people, fine people with fine backgrounds, simply don't kill people in cold blood. It just doesn't happen. And obviously, some part of them has not been presented thus far. Dan White was a native of San Francisco. He went to school here. Da-da-da-da-da, right? So the defense is telling this deeply empathetic human portrayal, easy to understand, easy to emotionally connect with story about this person of Dan White. And the prosecution is laying out this sort of of out-of-touch, obtuse uh, story that's much harder to connect with. And so you see Emily Mann say, well, look, I'm going to take these two things that didn't happen at the same time and give them to you at the same time so that you can make a judgment about who was doing a better job in, in trying this case.
1: Right and 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 cer- certainly this the 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 kind of pressures that the prosecution is under the the assumption i think of the prosecution um that this is open and shut like it's so obvious um that they perhaps didn't prepare the same way um there's an interesting character uh within the chorus of uncalled witnesses um Joseph Friedas Jr who is the who was the DA at the time who was connected to uh both Moscone and Uh, Harvey Milk, Um, so he couldn't, he felt that he couldn't uh, take on the case, but he was the one who helped assign uh, Norman to the case, Thomas Norman to the case, and he has these interesting critiques or side conversations or voices from the chorus, however you want to phrase what the chorus is doing, where he's saying there was, there was much more (laughs) that, that could have happened. And, and here's how it could have happened. Here's how I wish it could have happened. Here's, but it didn't not really sure why. Um, and, and you have, you have this kind of, this critique coming of that moment, um, from, from other voices from the DA that kind of looks at how the, the case was made perhaps poorly, um, and, and was fought for, uh, perhaps unexpectedly. <laughs> um, and, and yet you also, and, and as much as this play notes the complications, notes the uh, complicating circumstances and the way it just, you know, all rolled out. It also doesn't shy away from saying that an injustice occurred. The, 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 the constitution of the jury um, being very sympathetic to Dan White in its makeup is noted on. You also have uh, the same, same district attorney character saying uh, that he heard one of the the jurors uh, saying, "Well, what's going to happen to Dan White's wife if he's, uh, you know, locked away for forever?" And his response is, "What's going to happen to Dan White and Harvey Milk's, or I'm sorry, uh, George Moscone yeah. and Harvey Milk's families uh, now that they're gone?" So, so, so you have you have that kind of imbalance of justice, the bias of the jury. You also have pretty frequently. Um, the court tries, I think, uh, in 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 and its court. Just to
0: just to clarify when you the character of the yeah. court is that's that's just how the, the name appears in the script. I, I think it is intended to mean the judge when they say yeah. the court.
1: I agree. Yeah. So, so the judge or the court is kind of ruling these objections back and forth because both attorneys are, are, uh, are objecting to various l- courses of reasoning. Thomas Norman usually brings a pretty, uh, clear objection to, to what is happening on stage. He says, I object and here's the reason, uh, it varies on its success rate. Um, um but then the, the, uh, Douglas Schmidt, I don't think very rarely, if ever brings a reason, he just objects and then the judge says sustained and here's why so you have the judge kind of like supplying uh schmidt with some uh <laughs> some help for his objections perhaps even showing some of the the judge's own bias to the case that that he is kind of controlling what norman can do what line of reasoning norman can pursue and so you you do have this critique that critique of an injustice you have that coming through pretty clearly still through the through the play's voice that there was there was something wrong that the, the 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 eventual decision of the jury was was unjust in some way
0: and and that's where this kind of a piece diverges from like a courtroom drama play or tv show or movie where the end result is hung out as a sort of mystery and we watch the attorneys you know you watch the uh, the second half of every law and order episode right it's like what's going to happen with the evidence presented by these two different attorneys in this case the 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 end result of this trial is already known was already known when the play came out right this is a this was a big deal still is, right? Most people still know the name Harvey Milk and what that means if you talk about that assassination, right? So the, the end result of this trial is held as a fact, and that's why it is not held as a mystery in the play. Uh, very early in this script, uh, the uh, former assistant of Harvey Milk's is basically being interrogated in court, and when he finishes, he comes out and says, this, this thing is over. They asked the, the defense attorney asked me a clearly queer baiting question, and the jury didn't didn't look shocked at all. I think he says they didn't bat an eye. This thing is over. So we get the analysis of a character that it's over, but then just pages later, we have an interview with the DA. I think this is the same interview you were just talking about, but that interview with the DA clearly happens a while after the court case has been decided. So she's taking something from much later in time and giving it to us in the middle of her portrayal of this courtroom. And what the DA says is they acquitted Dan White. The, the, the jury acquitted Dan White. Here's some of my analysis on why. So we're told in the first half of the play what the end result of the trial is going to be. And what I think the purpose of that is, beyond just a, re- a recognition that we, the audience then and even now already knows, is that it asks us to focus on how the end result came about rather than wondering what the end result is going to be. This is not a mystery of... Uh, of result. This is a mystery of method.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that, 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 that awareness right away, whether you have lived through the events or not, um, but early on in the play that, that he was essentially acquitted of, of, of his, his first degree murder of these two is, is kind of set, sets the bar and then you, then you grapple, (laughs) then you stay awake for the rest of the play through, through all these different events that are happening. And, and you also have this, uh, it's 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 it's, <laughs> it's a play that is of uh, that could be a court drama. Right. Like the the scenes are so intense. The scenes are it seems like what I would be saying if this was not a documentary at this point was this is such a well written play that has like such building drama and and great counterpoints and arguments, great courtyard or courtyard courtroom drama um, that that is building throughout arguments that are made very well. You know, it's it's it has the feeling of of uh, a court drama and yet it is in fact real life and and is in fact interwoven with all of these real stories so you the, the line gets blurred as you read it between am i wait 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 am i am i am i hoping that there's a different outcome than i know is going to happen, and and if so, uh, you know where where is my attention being drawn? Is my attention being drawn to the possibility of, of a of a more just outcome, or or that focus on systems and how systems work, and whether whether something could have happened differently, and examining the event itself rather than staying on board with the characters throughout the play.
0: And it, it's the way that the that Emily Mann takes the hours, weeks months of court and dilutes them into a two-hour play that shows her craft and shows sort of the lens through which she's trying to tell this story a number of the reviews that i mentioned comment on the way the the lengths that she has gone to to demonstrate veracity to the point where some of the courtroom interrogations are a little boring a little obscure, <laughs> right? They just they just sound like a courtroom, which is mostly dull. If you spend any time in a court, it's mostly dull when you go to a court. And so her attempt to demonstrate objectivity and veracity by including those kinds of things, it does sort of lull you into the idea that I'm being given an objective record of these events. And this is the same sort of thing you experience often when you watch a documentary film, right? Is like I'm just being told the true story and there is always a lens through which the documentary filmmaker or in this case the playwright is telling the story and you know not one way or the other about how true the lens is certainly i have my own opinions and they probably align with emily mann's more than anything else but uh, uh, that doesn't change the fact that experiencing the story is experiencing emily mann's telling of the story
1: Yes, and by extension, the voices that she has gathered verbatim. I think the other, like, strong voice that is telling the story is this chorus of uncalled uh, witnesses. Um, so, so you certainly, you definitely have the playwright's ver- playwright's lens uh, in the com- compiling of these conversations. And by virtue of the structure of the play and how Emily Mann has has put it together, this chorus also has a lot to say about the events of this documentary play that we're watching. And and they, they, they have a lot of input, a lot of recasting of history, or at least re-examining of history through a new lens, through another light, through a light that is close to the story that were community members of the people involved who were not asked to kind of weigh in on it in an official capacity.
0: And, like, here's some of the things that Emily Mann includes from this chorus of uncalled witnesses. Jen, uh, Jim Denman, the the jailer, tells us that when White was being booked, the, the sort of experience of that moment was really, he uses the word fraternal. Like, police officers would come over and uh, pat Dan on the back and just sort of treat it like they were hanging out, right? There was no this dude just killed two other guys in cold blood political assassination sort of feeling. And so when he presents us as the audience with that, we get a lens that the jurors in the trial did not get because these witnesses were uncalled, right? That That is the point of what Emily Mann is, is attempting to do. Here is the case that could have been presented. Now you get to be the jury. And that's delightfully crystallized, I think, uh... Real late in the play, both the prosecution and the defense have rested. They've made their final cases. The defense attorney, Schmidt, comes out and is uh, is in an interview. And the the camera person asks, uh, this actually the reporter, asks, do you feel society would feel justice is served if the jury returns to manslaughter verdicts? And Schmidt, the stage direction, says, wry smile. Society doesn't have anything to do with it. Only those 12 people in the jury box. And I I think that is ultimately the, like I said, sort of a lovely crystallization of what Emily Mann is saying. The way that this was, the the way that it happens, right, is that a jury is presented with a story and they're sequestered from the outside world, ideally. And All this is part of the American justice system and good. And I don't think Emily Mann is criticizing that part of the American justice system. But what she is saying is, look, if you're going to not tell this part of the story, all these people that I could interview and put in a play and here's what they said, if you don't present that part of the story, then those people in the jury box understand a very different story. And I, as a playwright, can tell my own story with the same techniques, right? Because that's what lawyers do. They interview. They give quotes. They do. Uh, they do uh, interrogation. It's not an interrogation. It's like uh, <laughs> interviews <laughs> on the stand. Though is, I don't know. Yeah, they, yeah. They, yeah. They question yeah, yeah, yeah. them on the stand, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that the technique of a lawyer assembling. Things that people factually said and did and then interpreting those things through a lens for the jury is very much what Emily Mann does in this play. And she has her own witnesses that she brings forward. And
1: her own jury, and by by extension, the the audience becomes a re jury of this trial. You get the events of the case uh, as Emily Mann has presented it, and you kind of get to make your decision. This is kind of reflected in some of the later, the, the the very very near the end of the play, Norman, the prosecuting attorney, gives his kind of final. Uh, there's there's another court word for that that I don't know. Um, his final presentation or final speech to the jury, and he addresses some of it to the audience. Um, notably right in the middle of of this pretty extensive monologue, he looks to the audience as he is recounting the events of the murder before turning back to the jury. So you have this fourth wall break um, where, where this character speaks directly to the audience. And I, I think that is an extension of what we're talking about here as well, that the audience gets the chance to be a jury, potentially a jury that is more, <laughs> more balanced than the one that was given to the trial itself with, with more information than the jury got in the trial itself and allowed to make its own opinions or own thoughts based on this information that hasn't come to light before
0: and I, I i don't know if the ultimate goal is to be balanced i think she has a really particular lens that she is trying to very clearly tell the story of and again I, I, no disrespect for the lens just commenting on the craft through which that is achieved for example the play basically opens with diane feinstein uh, giving, it's, I think it's supposed to be a video recording, or so it seems to appear in the stage directions, of her announcing to the public the the, the two murders, the two killings. And boy, is it a, it's a painful moment. Just before we started recording, I watched the video of her doing this when it happened. And it is hard to watch. That is a person who is shell-shocked announcing this incredible thing that happened. And that's a very empathetic way to start your story if you're Emily Mann trying to tell this story we also learn something that the jurors wouldn't have known right which is part of the lens which is this is a reporter commenting on what happens after the trial dan white was examined by the psychiatrist at the state prison they decided against therapy dan white had no apparent signs of mental disorder so this is just part of her storytelling right she says this is what happens after the court decides this thing based on the case that the defense attorney presented
1: as we're coming down to what must be the end of our conversation, we're getting along to that time in the podcast. I, I want to just spend just a moment and think about these in in uh, in in uh, conjunction with or in conversation with the other murder plays that we've talked about this month. Um, we we I said at the beginning kind of the different sorts of themes that the the various plays of the month brought out. Um, this one's this one certainly feels different to me. I, I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think, uh, Jacob, about whether what, what this play is speaking into uh, the theme of murder? What's it saying about two very clear murders? No one denies that that murder happened here, um, whether just the degree of the murder is what is at stake in this play. So what is, what is, uh, yeah, what is, what is the lens through which we view these murders? We've talked about lens a lot, but like, what, what is it saying about murder itself?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I was thinking, too, about uh, of the whole of Murder Month, which play stands out as the most different? And it, it's certainly either the play we discussed last week, Charles Francis Jan Jr.'s Exotic Oriental Murder Mystery, or it is this play, <laughs> Execution of Justice. And part of it is just because those two plays are so distinct from the plays that we discussed in the first half. Now, it's not like Macbeth and Death Trap have a lot in common either. I mean, we we had a very right. di- a very divergent themed month this year in looking at really four very different takes on killing as used for the basis of a drama. In this case, the the action of murder is not so much a part of the story. The play begins, like I said, with Feinstein on video announcing that the murder has already happened. And so in this case, it is the analysis of the killing and, and the question of whether or not to ascribe certain kinds of moral weight and how society judged that moral weight and how the jurors judged that moral weight, how the case for responsibility was presented that makes up our story and in that way this play is almost more like Macbeth than any of the other plays right where the the question of responsibility and uh, uh, how this was I mean Macbeth is a political assassination right this yeah. play is a play about a political assassination the political implications of assassination
1: yeah it's notable that this that this play has no uh, murder taking place on stage. Everything. Every other play, there's been at least a fictitious murder happening on stage. This one, the murder is talked about a lot, described frequently. in
0: great detail, and reanalyzed yeah. in great detail several times.
1: Yeah, but the focus is not on the action itself. Rather, I, I agree with you. I, it's the focus is on the ramifications. The focus is on the people that it has affected, the communities that it has affected, and you get to see the the. Uh, just the yeah, the confusion, the shock, the the uh, the, the the ripple effects that it has throughout all of the people connected to it, the, 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 the way that the whole community, um, whether v- given a voice or not is affected by, it. you have friends, uh, in, in the chorus of uncalled witnesses, you have friends of both, uh, Milk and Moscone who, who are, who are still grappling with that loss. So you see the consequences, you see the, the, um, uh, yeah, the the extent to which this event uh, continues to affect people, and and I think that's more the focus of this play, um, and 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 by extension the culture at large, as we've said before the whole this this was a very famous case it continued to be uh to be talked about harvey milk got an award in 2009 um so so it was it's it, it continues to be talked about it's a very relevant cultural moment that that continues to have ripple effects as a result of the actions of dan white
0: and and the other thing that this play i think attempts to do is present us with this is how different stories can be told about the same event, right? I mean, I don't—this is this particular murder case is not one in which innocence is a possible option, right? I mean, the, the defense attorney says from the beginning, look, he killed him. It wasn't self defense. It wasn't whatever. Uh, he wasn't insane to the point where he's not responsible. There is a responsibility. This is this is an objectively bad thing for him to have done. The question is just, what is the story that can be told with that as the starting point? And Emily Mann says, look, uh, on the one hand, I'm going to show you the story that was told by the defense. I'm going to show you the story that was told by the prosecution. And then you can sort of see how those were weighed by the jurors and the society at large. But Emily Mann says, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a third story about those events. And it is then on you as the audience to say, I have been shown different lenses through which to view these sort of factual events. I mean, it, the fact of the killing is not a dispute. The question is the lens through which to view the killing.
1: And what justice what justice fits what happened, or, or what justice fits whatever can be told of what happened. And whether... And, and the big question, whether that justice actually happened or not. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and uh, yeah, and, and so, so, yeah, that's, that's part of what the audience is, is being asked to decide, too, is whether, whether justice was actually served as a result of, of what happened as a result of this murder.
0: I think that is probably the time that we have to discuss Execution of Justice by Emily Mann. We didn't really talk much about the title. It's a brilliant title the double yeah. play on the word execution is really really smart and there's a, i read a great interview with her about the writing of this show and the, the the time it took for them to develop this title for this piece which i think is so cool and uh, that is also the end of our murder month we made it it's through true. four plays about death we have Whew. survived yeah, we
1: made it through uh, with with our palate cleanser in the middle. Um, so so yeah, thank you all for hanging out for this themed month. Um, the conversation about this play or any of the plays in Murder Month does not have to end here. Um, this play is just just robust. It's chock full of things to talk. We could have talked about, like, just one act for more than an hour. Easily, um, yeah. So <laughs> Easily. Um, so, so yeah, there's plenty to talk about in this place. That We'd love to be able to continue this conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username, at NoScript Podcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScript Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about execution of justice with you.
0: Absolutely. If you would, please recommend this podcast to your family and friends if you liked this episode if you liked other episodes if you like the fact that we do theme months or any particular thing that excites you about what's going on at no script pass that on to folks we know that the best way this is going to spread is for folks that like theater sharing it with other people that like theater and we've been just shocked at how well that spread has gone without much uh, you know without much going on from us so we we rely so much <laughs> yeah. on you all to spread the word of the podcast and we really appreciate all all of your work for there you can send folks that you want to recommend to where we are hosted on Podbean. we're also on spotify apple Podcasts, google play but honestly one really easy way that you can have folks that aren't particularly technologically savvy connect with us is if they have a facebook account just like us on facebook and then every monday when a new episode comes out there'll be a link that appears right there that you can click it'll take you to where you can just play the episode just as easy as that
1: we got an exciting end of the season coming. We're coming to the end of this season. We're coming out of themed month, but boy, we got some fun stuff we in the pipeline do. coming. We're not ready to really announce any of it yet, but those of you who are longtime listeners of the show know that we do at least one guest episode every season. So that is coming. We're not going to announce it yet, but get excited for it. We're stoked to have extra conversations with some guests on the podcast. Um But uh, we'll be talking about another play next week. So until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am
0: Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see ya.